Thank you, worship team. Now, if you guys were like, I don't know, into it, you would have all just gone, amen. So thank you, worship team. Amen. <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk about amen eventually here because it's at the end of the creed, right? Amen. I'm just going to shout it out there. We don't know what it means, but no, we're going to use it. That's all right. We'll talk about it. Would you guys do me a favor? This is going to be awkward if you're a guest with us, perhaps. Um, and, you know, if you're a guest and you don't know anybody, you don't have to say, say this to, some, to anybody, but I hope somebody will say it to you. Would you just look around at somebody and just say, God really loves you? Would you just, like, we need to hear that this morning. Oh, and just take a minute, do it. There's a lot of hugs going on right now. We need to hear this. God loves you. He is for you. He is not against you. He is not looking to squash you. His love is for you. He is so in love with you. Um, as I was writing my sermon this week, I, I spent a lot of time studying it, and then some various uh, interruptions came along. And so it came to Thursday afternoon, which is the day I'm like trying to finish this thing up, and I'm still sitting there trying to get all of this onto paper, you know, at this point. And, and I'm sitting there, and, and I'm in my office. And if you don't know, my office is actually the front of the church out there, right next to the heater and the door. And, and I use this. This is my desk, so it's kind of like, like my office. I've moved my office into here. And uh, I'm sitting there at my desk, and, and I'm reading this passage from Exodus 34. And I've been, again, I've been studying it all week. And as I'm reading this passage again, I'm listening to some worship music, and in that moment, suddenly the love of God just kind of washed over me. And it's because of what he revealed of himself in the scripture today. And I sat there and I was just like, I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like this. There's this moment where it's like the light bulbs go off and then like all of heaven seems to open and there's angels singing. And there's just this moment of this deep awareness of the presence of God. And, and he says to me, I love you like this. And I love this city like this. And I love this university like this. And that love became so overwhelming. His mercy was so overwhelming. I was literally crying, standing out there at the edge of the front end of the theater, right in the windows. And people are walking by and they always look in the doors. And they look and they're looking. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I literally crying. I got really very emotional. And I'm, and I'm like blubbering. And people are like, hi. You know, Jesus loves you. That's why I'm crying. So I hope that in this moment, that you will experience what I experienced that day. Because today we're talking about the forgiveness of sins, God's forgiveness of us. He loves you. He really, really loves you. Is what we're going to hear this morning. He's not left you to wonder about who he is or what he thinks about you. He's not left us to try to puzzle it out or work to earn it. In fact, when we have, we're celebrating Christmas. We're starting the Advent season today. This is the day that we celebrate. Christmas Eve, or Christmas Day, is the day we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And in the Hebrew, we call Jesus Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And he's not just with us to squash us. He's with us because he's for us. He's with us because he loves us. So let's just lift up our hands this morning and, and receive this love as we pray this morning. Jesus, I thank you for your love and for your mercy and for your grace that washes over each one of us in this room. Lord, for every brokenness, for every hurt, for every fear, God, I pray that it would just be washed in your presence this morning. May the weariness of this season of running so hard to try to make something of our lives or try to make Christmas happen 
or trying to run from our messes. God, I pray that weariness that's in us would melt off as you restore the dry and broken places of our hearts. May these dry bones, this valley of dry bones, rise up again and may flesh be knitted upon it. May spirit be poured into it. And may we praise you because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. That was good, amen? Somebody would have said all the time. It would have been good. So God is good all the time. That is so churchy, but it's so true, right? It is. You know, we try not to be churchy around here, but there's some things that churches do because they're really true, and that's one of them. God is good all the time. So I just pray that you sense his presence in this. We're in week 11 today. Week 11. Anybody tired of this series yet? Good job! I mean, like with television and stuff, like 15 minutes is the average attention span of people nowadays. And here we are 11 weeks in, and you're still paying attention. Good job. It's awesome. So 11, week 11, and we're looking at the phrase, um, I believe in forgiveness. And normally, so in the, in the actual creed, it says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And I'm cutting that just a little bit short. And I'll tell you why. I'm not, not that I'm not going to talk about sins, but because... When we read this phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, we're often thinking about this singular relationship that you have with God, right? That Jesus forgave your sins. And that is so very true. But I think that this phrase is actually so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than just this me-centric idea that we have of the creed being about me and about God. I believe in the forgiveness of my sins. It's really only a very small part of the story. So let's just start with this phrase, I believe in forgiveness. Now, I kind of wish that you and I could go sit down in the ministry office or maybe in your living room and sit on your couch and you could, you know, provide me with some amazing gluten-free treats and a cup of coffee. I mean, I always wish that, but I wish we could sit and have this like face-to-face, just you and me hanging out sort of conversation so that I could push a little bit, okay? So that in the comfort of and the privacy of, of a, just a relational friendship space, we could talk about forgiveness, really, and talk about deep places in our heart where God wants to go and, and push just a little bit against some of the things you're thinking. But we don't have time and space for that, so we're going to do this in a sermon. This is a really, really countercultural statement. I believe in forgiveness. I mean, just have to look at the news, right? The recent events that are out there, um, the news especially likes to highlight um, our culture's desire for outrage and punishment, right? We got some images here uh, that, that are just from recent news. I mean, look, you got the Roy Moore allegations. You've got Matt Lauer getting fired. You've got Black Lives Matter. You've got young, this guy here was killed by police officers. Donald Trump's statements. I mean, all this stuff is inflammatory. I mean, some of you are already like squirming because you're angry at some of the pictures, right? Our culture desires not forgiveness, but it desires outrage and anger so that we get pushed to do something about it. And we live in this culture that's constantly pushing us to call for the punishment of the sins of people around us. Now, don't get me wrong here, because I'm not taking away any of the guilt from any of the people that have done anything wrong in this world, okay? God is not pleased with a lot of what's going on here. Actually, I should probably say with anything that's going on here. God is not pleased But at the same time, I want to consider what our heart response is to the news of our world, to what's going on around us. What is going on inside of us as we watch these things, as we hear stories of sexism, of racism, as we hear stories of violence? 
what happens inside of us? Is it a call for punishment and justice? Or is it a godly call for forgiveness and restoration? Shame isn't a part of our U.S. justice system, right? We don't go before the judge and he doesn't say, shame, shame, shame upon you. And then you go through this life with shame attached to you because the justice system has put it on there. But our human system does it just for us, right? We go around and we shame people for the things that they've done wrong. We shame people for the things that they've said. We shame people uh, because they've broken the law and because they've been convicted of crimes. And we walk in this human system that's full of shame. And then we hear these stories and we take them and we share them on Facebook. And we share them on Instagram and we share them on Twitter. And what we're doing is we're participating in this culture of outrage and guilt and shame and we're trying to perpetuate it. And what we perpetuate, instead of wholeness and forgiveness and reconciliation and bringing our world to healing, we're further dividing it. We're, we're fanning the flames of outrage, of hate, and of anger, and ultimately creating division, and very little will ever change if this is what we do. So let's go to the Bible, right? Now, you're like, that's some good opinions. That sounds like maybe you're pushing us in a political direction, because I'm not. I don't want you to hear that at all. So let's go to the Bible and see what God has to say about this. You want to turn your Bibles to Exodus 34. So I hope you're going to see this morning that there is a different response we can have. And this is God's response. Our response to failures of others can be very different than what God's response is. We're going to be looking in the second book of the Old Testament, Exodus, if you're not familiar with the Bible. It's uh, toward the front. It's the very second book. We're going to be toward the end of the book in chapter 34. And here we give you a little bit of background. We're actually at the very end of a story. All right? This is the end of a story. And what's happened up to this point? We have Genesis, which is all about the creation, and God creating Adam and Eve, and then them having children, and then God having, out of all those children, picking one, Abraham, and setting him apart, and says, you're going to have kids, thousands and millions of kids, and when he's really old, he finally has one, and then that, that one becomes, you know, multiplies, and they grow, and God's building a people. Now those people go all the way to the end of Genesis, and we have this man named Joseph, who is kind of the leader of that family of, of nations, a family of people, and they are in Egypt thriving because there's a famine in Israel where they were from. And it's not Israel yet, but from the land where they were from. And they're there, and they live there. Joseph dies, and history goes on. And Exodus starts 400 years after this. And what's happened in between is that the people of Egypt forgot all about who the people of Israel were. They forgot Joseph was a good guy. They forgot he was the second guy to the king. And they forgot that he had this power and this authority and that they were being provided for and cared for. And instead, 400 years later, all the people are slaves, right? If you're familiar with the Bible, you know the story of the Exodus. You've seen the Prince of Egypt, right? Um, the Prince of Egypt is a pretty great story. It's pretty accurate, biblically speaking. It dramatizes the events of the Exodus. Short version is this. God breaks all the laws of nature to rescue his people, hundreds of thousands of people, and lifts them out of their slavery and leads them across by parting water. Here's, there's all the pictures, right? parting the water, and people walk across the Red Sea on dry land. There's a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud moving around. This is God's presence with the people. And here they are saving, or here he is saving everybody, and it ends with a show-stopping tomb, right? Deliver us! We're all singing right now. It's really exciting. So in this text, though, today's text, this is all the background leading up to this. We have to have all of that, because this was, this deliverance was fabulous, we're talking about signs and wonders, plagues and death and everything that God had to do to rescue his people. He leads them across this water. 
they've seen all this stuff with their own eyes, right? Their own eyes. Now they've been led out to the desert, and at the, the foot of this mountain, and God says, Moses, leader of the people, I want you to come up to the mountain with me. Come to the top of the mountain. I'm going to meet with you because I want to talk with you and teach you about some ground rules for living in relationship with me because you're not slaves anymore. You don't live like slaves now. You live like my chosen people. And so let me help you understand what that looks like. So Moses, he's up on the mountain meeting with God. The scholars think that this is about a three-week time period that Moses is gone. Three weeks, he's up on the mountain hanging out with God. In the midst of that, after about three weeks, all of these people have gathered, all these former slaves, people just rescued, right? Just walked across the Dead Sea on dry land with water on either side. And they come up to Aaron, Moses' brother and helper and the guy that helped talk to Pharaoh and all that, the guy who saw the pillar of fire, heard the voice of God. They come up to Aaron and say, hey, we don't know what happened to that guy that led us out. That man who did all the signs and wonders that led us out of Egypt. I mean, okay, error number one, right? They, they gave Moses the credit for what happened. Error number two, they said, we don't know what happened to him, but we need a God. We don't have a God. We need a God. In Egypt, we had lots of gods, but we need a God. So would you make us a God? Would you do that? For three weeks, they'd forgotten what just happened. Would you make us a God? And so Aaron says, well, sure. He was afraid of what they would say. He was afraid of what they'd do to him. Sure. Here's what you need to do. Everybody take out your gold earrings that you're wearing. This is the signature of your slavery, right? This is the sign of your former slavery. Take everybody, all of your kids, all the wives, everybody bring all your gold to me. And he takes it and he pounds it and fashions it into a golden calf. And then they worship it. It makes no sense. But then they worship this golden calf. Out of the signature of their slavery, this idol. They worship it. And in fact, what it says, is not that they worshipped it. They worshipped it, and then it says, and then they began to play. They began to play. And let me just tell you, this is not like riding on swing sets. Okay? It's more like what maybe happens on campus on Friday night in a frat house or a sorority house. It's serious stuff. Now, that's leading up to this point, right? That's all of Exodus and Genesis up there. There's the whole Bible, guys. If I was God in this moment, the Hulk would have nothing on me, okay? It would be Hulk smash, thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. People would be dying right now, right? The earth would shake. It would open up and swallow everybody to the sounds of screams. I mean, that's me. I mean, did you just realize how much work I just did? (laughs) I broke all the laws of nature for you people. And what have you done? You've built an idol and you've abandoned me. Can I tell you something really cool? God is not like me. And he is not like you. God is not like us. God looks over to Moses, who's been sitting there, you know, writing down the Ten Commandments, getting used to, the, like, what does this mean, and learning it for three weeks. God stops. I, I almost imagine it in mid-sentence. He's like, and thou shalt not... Wait, uh, Moses, you better get down to your people because things are not going well down there. It's not going well. And then he says this in Exodus 32. This is the specific words. Exodus 32, he says, Leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them. Hulk smash, right? It's smiting time. 
This is like, this is, here, here it comes, here it comes. But Moses, he intercedes. And he says, oh, God, you don't want to do that. You just, you just did all that work to rescue them. You know, you don't want people saying, look at what God did. He rescued all these people to drag them out into the desert to smite them. You don't want people thinking that you're like that. Okay, that's like the lamest argument in the world, right? I mean, that's really lousy lawyering for a person to, and with God of all people. Here's our, you don't want to do that, God. I'm going to reason with you. I'm still thinking, like, if you're saying this to me, I'm like, no, it's time to smash people. They've just totally abandoned me. They don't want me. In fact, he's like, I want to start over with you, Moses. We'll just use you. And I said, no, don't do it. This is where we see that God isn't like us. Because even with this lousy, lame excuse, it says this, that God relents from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on the people. God relented. But Moses doesn't. Moses marches down the mountain in a fury, all right? He's carrying the Ten Commandments. He has been meeting with God, so he is literally glowing. It says in other texts that Moses had to wear a bag over his head because people were afraid to look at him when he'd been in God's presence. So he is full of fury and anger, and he's glowing, and he's got the Ten Commandments, and he gets down there, and he throws these commandments on the ground, and he breaks all ten of them at one time. Pretty amazing. Only person in history to ever do it. And he breaks all ten of them, and he's, what have you done? And the people are like, you know, caught. You know that moment where you're caught? What? He smashes the idol. He grinds it into powder. He pours it into water and makes everybody drink it. You're going to eat this sucker. He makes them all drink it. And then he's so angry that he sends people out into the camp to find the leaders of this rebellion and actually has them put to the sword, right? Hulk smash. This is God's wrath at work. Except for it's not, because God never commands Moses to do this. Moses is acting on his own just as I would and just as you would. Our human imperfection, our, our perfectly human response to be angry, Moses runs out there and does his thing. Now let me show you what Moses or God's response is. Moses' response is to break the Ten Commandments and to kill people. God's response is different. In Exodus 33, Moses says to God, if I found favor in your eyes, if, if, if my servanthood of you, if my life for you, if anything that I've done for you has ever shown you any favor, if, if, if you love me, he says this to God, show me your ways. Show me your ways that I might find more favor. It's a weird circular statement. It means this, if I'm your friend, show me what you're like so that I can be a better friend to you. Or if you're a kid, maybe it's like, if, if I'm your son or if I'm your daughter, dad, show me who you are so that I can be more like you. I've never said that to my dad. That'd be weird, right? Maybe another way to say it would be like this. Teach me what you are like so that I can understand you and be a better friend to you. That's what Moses asked God. Quite the prayer. And God is really awesome because he looks at Moses and he says, yep, that's exactly what I'm going to do. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I know these people have blown it. They've totally rebelled against me. They've abandoned me. Just three weeks or four weeks after I broke all the laws of nature to rescue them, here they are uh, worshiping this idol. But you know what? I'm going to show them what I'm like so that they can know me and they can be more like me and I can love them more and they can love me more. So here we are at Exodus 34, verse 5. And this is what happens. Moses goes up to the mountain again to meet with God. And God says, it says this in verse 5. The Lord descends in a cloud and stood with him, stood with Moses. 
mean, okay, starters, God is now standing next to Moses. Nerve-wracking, you know? Imagine if it happened to you. And in these texts, God always descends in a cloud or a pillar of fire. So there's this cloud, a column of cloud standing next to Moses, and they're like, hey, God, hey, Moses, how's it going? You know, and they're like, it says that they met face-to-face like friends. So God descends in a cloud, and it's reminding Moses of the God that brought him out of Egypt, the God that rescued them by breaking all the laws of nature. And he's standing there with Moses. And then it says this, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. He said who he is. And it's not like saying, I am Casey, Casey, Casey. Like, I have no idea what that means, Casey. Thank you for sharing your name three times. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. You're like, okay. Each time we're like getting a bigger picture. This is talking about Jehovah. This is talking about the creator of all the universe. So now we have the pillar of fire standing there declaring that I created everything. I am all-powerful and all-knowing. And he's standing there and he's not moving. But then he begins to pass before Moses, it says. And I almost have this image. It's like, you guys ever watch the Westminster Kennel Club? Like, I know it happens accidentally. Nobody watches that on purpose, right? You're like, you're trying to watch baseball or you're trying to watch, I don't know, QVC. I don't know what you guys are watching. You're watching the shopping channel and you're flipping, blah, blah, blah. And here comes the Kennel Club and it's got a person with a Weimaraner dog and it's going in front of them. And the judges are looking at this dog from every angle, right? It's almost this image that we have is that God is passing before Moses like, like almost like a dog is being led to show every aspect and every side of the dog. And God is saying, look, here I am. You can see me. I'm spinning around. I want you to see every aspect, every part of me. Let me show you who I am. And then he doesn't just show him. He proclaims it. He says it out loud. I want you to really see me. And he says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, He's saying, I'm not a God of wrath. I'm not Thor, the God of thunder. I'm not Zeus, the God of the lightning bolt. I'm not any of these gods of the world, Baal, who wants you to sacrifice children to them. I am different. I am not the God of wrath. I am not the God of death and destruction. What he says is, I am God, and I'm not the God of something. I am love. I am faithfulness. I am mercy and grace. I'm full of love. And I'm not just full I'm, like, I'm not even like a glass half empty or glass half full kind of love. I'm abounding in love. And so it shouldn't be surprising to you that it's hard to make me angry. Whoa. I'm full of love, and I'm slow to anger. I'm so loving that it is hard. It's difficult to make me angry. And then he says this, I'm keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? He's not like, it's not a passing love. This is a long-term love. This is an infatuation. This is passion. But it's also not just letting the sin go. It's not just saying, oh, we're just going to gloss over this. He's saying, no, we're going to still deal with some stuff here. Now Moses responds, verse 8. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth. I find it interesting that God comes and stands next to Moses and he's like, hey God. But then when God moves and starts to say all this stuff, that's when Moses falls down. Right? He falls down and worships him. And he said, now if I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let go, let the Lord go into the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. 
saying our necks are stiff. You guys get this? Stiff necks, we can't turn real quick. We're like, oh, squirrel. And we turn our whole bodies toward the squirrel, and we're going to chase that thing. And God, Moses is saying, look, don't just forgive us from a distance, God. Come in the midst of us, because there's so many things out there that we want to turn our bodies and our whole lives toward, and we need to be focused on you. Come be in the midst of us. Be in the, right in the thick of it, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Verse 10, and God said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Now, you guys remember from past teachings that a covenant is not like a rental agreement, right? A covenant actually limits your rights and increases your responsibility, where like a rental agreement uh, limits your responsibilities, increases your rights. Okay, so God's making a covenant and taking responsibility on himself for what he's about to say. He says this, this is his covenant, before all of your people, I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. This is going to be wilder than what you just saw in Egypt. Okay, remember the plagues? Remember, you remember the locusts and the frogs and the water turning to blood? You remember when I parted the waters? That stuff is pretty amazing. But you're about to see things that you could not even imagine. And then he says this. It's going to be even wilder than that because all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do for you. My outline this morning is really, really very simple. It's two things. First, that God forgives. That's just what he does. But he does more than that because my second point attaches everything back to the Holy Catholic Church and the community of saints that we've been talking about, that God displays his forgiveness in the church. God displays his forgiveness to the world through his people. God uses forgiven people to reveal his forgiveness to the world. So let's look a little bit closer at the idea that God forgives. The story comes at the greatest moment of betrayal, right? They have literally turned their back on a God who just rescued him. The people that he loves have just taken another God, one that they made up, and they just totally acted beneath the dignity of the people of God and of human beings in, in general. The word play, as I mentioned earlier, in the Hebrew, it just paints this picture of these awful parties. Every awful party that's ever been had, you think of the wildest Roman parties, you think of all the worst frat parties and sorority parties, you combine it all into one place, and that's what we're talking about. They began to play after their great failure. It's human desire way out of control. They worship an object, and then they turn themselves into objects for one another's pleasure. They let go of their humanity and God's deity all in one moment. If this was on the news today, you and I would be outraged. We would be so mad. We'd be so upset. We'd be shocked that this had happened. We'd call for punishment. We'd say that universities shouldn't allow this stuff to happen. Campuses should be dry. We should maybe even segregate men and women. It was this bad. I mean, like, we shouldn't have this going on in our world. But again, God is not like us. And just a note here, most of world religions and their sacred texts, what they're talking about is what they think God is like. But Christianity and Judaism uh, are unique in that God reveals what he is like. It's radically opposite. Islam says we think God is, is, is uh, wrathful, so we have to pour out wrath upon the infidel. Uh, Buddhism says we think God is nothingness, so here are the steps to get to the place where you experience perfect peace, which is nothingness. But Christianity says this is what God is like. And it says it from God's perspective, not ours. So God is revealing what he is like. The God of the Christian Bible is something very, very different. This text, we don't hear people telling us what they think God is like. 
Instead, we get God himself telling us what he's like. So in this sermon, this is God speaking, not me. He says here that I am mercy and grace, slow to anger, full of love and faithfulness. And because of this, because this is who I am, I forgive. And he says these three things. I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sins. Okay, three things threw me for a loop here. Aren't those all the same, right? Synonyms? Like, they're all exactly the same thing, except for they're not. He says he forgives transgressions. And transgression is, it's an intentional break of trust. It's a betrayal or a rebellion. The word picture that you would get here is like a toddler. And you guys, many of you have had toddlers. So you've got the cookie jar on the countertop, you know, and the toddler comes to you and says, Mommy, can I have a cookie? And you say, No, honey, we're going to eat dinner soon, right? What does the toddler do? Opens the drawers really quietly, climbs up the counter, reaches into the cookie jar as you turn around and said, I said no. And he's like, Ah, and eats the cookie while you're looking at him. This is a transgression, okay? It is an intentional rebellion, an intentional sin against that other person. That's the word picture. And you know what? It's that defiance. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what you think. I don't care who you say you are. That's a defiant rebellion. I'll do what I want to do. And God here says, I forgive transgressions. You looked right at me. You saw me on all my wonder. And here you are worshiping an idol willfully. I forgive that. Then he says he forgives iniquity. Now, I can't think of too many more religious-sounding words than iniquity, right? Nobody ever says iniquity. It's not in the news. The iniquity of this generation is in, you know, embodied in this man or whatever. We don't say iniquity. Confession time? I had no clue what iniquity even meant before I read this passage this week. I was like, yeah, wait a minute. What is that word? So I looked it up. Looked at Google. You know, he knows everything. Iniquity is simply this. It's really simple. It's rightful guilt. It's rightful guilt. It's guilt that you deserve to have. You did a transgression. You defied your mom or your dad. So you have iniquity. Rightful guilt. You did it. It was your fault. You're guilty. And then God says, I forgive transgressions and I forgive your guilt. And finally, God says he forgives sin. And again, that totally sounds like a synonym for a transgression, but it's not. Sin is not just a single action. It's, a, it's the accumulated actions, the accumulated transgressions and iniquity of all of us, of all time, all together, foisted upon us. It's this world we live in. It's this state that we find ourselves in. Human history backs me up that we are incapable of making this world perfect. We are incapable of always doing the right thing and always wanting the right thing. That's sin. That's sin in us. And it's not just a nice idea that we live in a world that is broken and so we can excuse ourselves. It's the reality we live in. But God lives in a different reality than us. He lives in a reality that is perfect. He lives in a reality that sees all of history being healed and renewed and restored. And this is heaven. And it's not just this nice idea that we're waiting for, but it is reality for God, and God is trying to make that reality here and now in us. It's what he's working to create in earth. And so despite our sin, despite our collected actions that don't measure up to God's character, or even to our intended nature as God's image bearers, despite our iniquity, the right guilt that we carry, 
despite all of our transgressions, every time that we have intentionally chosen a path that wasn't God, God says he forgives. God is giving us a picture of just how forgiven we are. There is no more forgiven you could be. There is literally nothing left to forgive if God has forgiven every bit of your transgression individually and corporately. If God has forgiven all of your guilt and if God has forgiven all of humanity's sin, you cannot be more forgiven. He just drops the charges in this moment for all this cheating the people did. They cheated on God and he looks at them and he says, I am God and merciful and gracious. I am slow to anger and abounding in love. This is who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. And you were forgiven. But God is still just. He forgives, but like a good parent in a parenting moment, parents, our world offers us, our world, let me say it this way, our world has consequences, right? And it offers us a lot of chances to learn by its consequences. But our modern parenting culture, we want to protect our kids from consequences. We want to protect one another from our consequences. Our whole culture is driven this way. Let's protect ourselves from the consequences of our behavior. But God doesn't remove the consequences of our behavior. He removes the break in our relationship. He forgives this relationship between us and him, but he by no means clears the guilty of the consequences. Now, I imagine after this big party, there were some people that were pregnant, and they didn't know who the guy was. I imagine there were some people that woke up and they had done things that they couldn't even imagine or couldn't even remember. And there are consequences that are going to catch up to those people, and they had to live them out. That's the world we live in. We try to limit consequences, but life eventually catches up to us. This line in Exodus goes on, and God says that not only is there consequences, but he visits the iniquity, the guilt of the parent upon their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren, four generations down the line. And that doesn't sound fair, does it? That doesn't sound fair. Like, I should be responsible for what my great-great-grandfather did? You know, like, five greats down the line? I had a, a grandfather who was a Civil War soldier and, and Confederate soldier and was wrapped up in all that stuff that I should be responsible for slavery because, you know, he fought for the, the Confederate side? That doesn't seem fair. God isn't saying, look, you're responsible for what your great-grandfather did. What he's saying is your great-grandfather's broken behavior got passed on to his kids because he learned how to live a certain way, and it wasn't necessarily formed by God's ways. It was formed by his parents, and he taught his kids how to live, and his kids taught their kids, and their kids taught their kids. In the EHS class, our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality class, we like to say that Jesus lives in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones, right? Many of you guys know this. That that sin, that be broken behavior, our ways of understanding the world and operating the world, they follow from generation to generation until something happens, until God intervenes, until God breaks the pattern in us, till we are aware enough of who we are to stop, to stop passing it down. No matter how broken, though, or how rebellious, or however far down the line it goes, God says, those, those, those consequences are going to follow, but I still forgive. You're going you're gonna to feel the weight of this brokenness. You're going to experience it. You're going to mess it up too. But guess what? I still forgive. No Hulk smash. No thunder and lightning. Just mercy, love, grace, and because of that, hope. But we struggle with this as people. 
Christians struggle with the idea that God forgives. And we like it intellectually, but in our heart, we sin, and then we go, how can God really forgive me? If, if God really knew all the things that I ever did, how could he forgive that? And it's because we don't do real well at forgiving one another. If you could see perfectly into my mind and into my heart at all the times, you wouldn't approve of the things that I think. You wouldn't approve of all that goes on inside of me. And I wouldn't approve of all that goes on inside of you. I'm sure of it. And you know what? God can actually see these things. And yet he still looks upon you and says, I love you. Oh, that was a messed up thought. I love you. Oh, why did you think that? Why did you go that direction? Why did you do that? Come on, let's get forgiveness going on. Let's get some healing going on. I love you. This is how God works. No matter how broken we are, we are forgiven. And it's we struggle with this idea because we can't really believe it. And we're not given like a letter, right? It's not like we've been given a, a license from God. You, you became a Christian. I said the prayer. Oh, here's your license. It, here's your little note that says you're forgiven. And you just, or you, you're, you're driving, you speed, you know, you're speeding down the road and a cop pulls you over and he hands you a, a ticket. And rather than it being a ticket, it says, hey, it's forgiven. It's not like you have a note on your seat someday when you come into the office that says, hey, everything's forgiven. We don't have anything like that except for this, this whole Bible. We forget to read the note, actually, is what happens. We forget to dig into it and discover our forgiveness. And we go through life wondering if we're really forgiven. We do exactly what we would expect. We work to earn the forgiveness that we don't deserve. We work to deserve it. And when it comes to others, we withhold that forgiveness until they've earned it. Until it seems like they deserve it. Until it seems like they're contrite enough. Yes, here it is in the Old Testament, though. Where the God of wrath, a lot of our culture thinks is lurking, the God who is ready to smash us, he is here with this wild forgiveness. A wild forgiveness that we can't imagine. And the question is, are you ready to receive it? causes me to ask this question. I mean, we say the creed. We say, I believe in God's forgiveness of my sins. Maybe you've asked for it. You've invited Jesus into your heart, but there's still this creeping doubt. And I want to invite you to do something that a friend, a new friend of mine said to me recently. And this is a man who is he's, he's exploring his faith uh, for the first time in his whole life. He says, I gave myself the permission to doubt my doubt. And I want to ask you to give yourself permission to doubt your doubt in God's forgiveness of you. Would you doubt that just for a minute so that you can maybe begin to hold on to and grab a hold of this forgiveness? Secondly, I want to ask you if you really believe in it. And have you received this forgiveness that he's offering just so freely? I forgive you. All we can do is receive it. It gets better, and the first one was really long point. This is a really short point. Second point is this is that God is revealing that forgiveness that he's offered to you and to me, to this whole world. He's offering it to our neighbors, to our co-workers. He's offering it to Samaria, okay? Now, I, I heard a, a speaker recently say, when, when Jesus says, I want you to go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world, baptizing the Father and the Son, it's taking the gospel, taking this message, God forgives you, to the whole world. He's like, Judea, that's like right where they live. Jerusalem is like right next door. It's their home. But Samaria was a place that was 
It was just across the street, but it was a world apart from them. It was a culture so different than theirs that they couldn't even hardly operate in it. We're talking about, I mean, maybe for you, it's the, the LGBTQ plus culture. We're talking gays, lesbians, transgender, bisexual, that culture, this culture, you're, I'm not, I don't know what goes on in there. It's scary to me. I mean, this is the place where God's saying, you got to take this forgiveness into that. Maybe it's the bar down the street where people are getting so drunk and they're just out of their minds and they're out of control and their lives are out of control. Maybe it's campus. It's young people that, you, I don't know how to, to respond to young people. I'm so different. I'm like, I'm like 35 and I just don't, we're like, you know, maybe that's you or, or I don't know where Samaria is for you. But it's that place that you're uncomfortable to go and God is calling you to carry this forgiveness in there and God uses his people to do it, to platform it to platform God's forgiveness. He says, behold, which remember we said a few weeks ago, it means stand in awe and wonder at this. Like, just be so, you're going to jaw-dropping, mind-blowing. God makes a covenant before all of your people. I'm going to do these marvels. I mean, this is forgiveness is what he's talking about. The marvels that he is talking about is the marvels of forgiveness, that people that are so far from God are going to be forgiven. And it's not like anything you've ever seen and that, this, that forgiveness is going to be displayed to everybody that is around you. Because God extends that forgiveness to all of us. And we're transformed by it. And in God's kingdom is being formed on earth in us as we receive and live in that forgiveness. Miracles happen in this world, not because God just wills miracles to happen, but, but they happen because forgiven people exist. Because the miracles of God can come through you because you are forgiven. Because the brokenness of your family and your, your sin and your rebellion and all of that stuff has been wiped away, God can release his miracles through you. Part two of the covenant is even better than the first because it's not focused on one individual it's, or even one race, right? It's not just Abraham. It's not just Isaac. It's not just Jacob. It's not just the people of Israel. Suddenly, we've got this vision of Peter, who is the disciple, having a vision of God saying, look, everybody's welcome now. And you can eat bacon. It's the best part of the whole Bible. It's in Acts chapter 6 or 8, I think. You know, he's like, everybody is invited to the party. My forgiveness is for everybody, and you can eat bacon. It's amazing. Forgiveness is about you and God, yes, but it is also about the whole world. And that's why it's so important for us to learn to act as God does. And to begin to learn to forgive the people in our life that hurt us, that transgress against us, that are rightfully guilty for what they've done. And here's just a little note. You can only forgive what's yours to forgive. We're not talking about forgiving slave owners. We're not talking about forgiving um, all men because they have subjugated all women. We're, we're asking you to forgive. God is asking you to forgive as he forgives those who have wronged you, those who have hurt you. Forgiveness is about you and God, but it is about the whole world. And if we can trust God to forgive us, then it's time for us to begin to extend that forgiveness to the world around us. If we relate to people in any way, for any period of time, you're going to have to forgive. Or maybe say it this way. If you're going to relate to any people for any period of time, you're going to need forgiveness. I have experienced that firsthand, right? I've married. You can't be married and not have to experience forgiveness from time to time. Sometimes it's small. Oh, I forgot to pick up that thing at the store. Forgive me. Not a big deal. Sometimes it's big. Sometimes it's thoughts and actions that I've had or any number of things. We have to forgive. And our forgiveness 
is always costly because it's going to cost you something to give it. When two forgiven people relate to one another, though, what the Bible is saying is that forgiveness is what leaks out, right? Have you ever met people that leak? We talk about this in EHS as well. The people that are filled with bitterness and rage and anger, what leaks out of them is bitterness, rage, and anger, right? It pops up when you least expect it. But if you are a forgiven person and you've received God's forgiveness and that forgiveness is flowing and living in you, what is going to leak out is forgiveness. Costly forgiveness. Suddenly, people that shouldn't get along do. And that's the picture of Acts chapter 2. You have slaves and slave owners, abusers and victims, thieves and their marks, nations and tribes and languages and tongues that should be warring. They're all forgiven, and they're figuring out how to forgive one another because of it. And when that happens, it is so crazy, it is so countercultural, it is so unnatural that the world takes notice. So let's take a moment. And I want to be silent before the Lord and listen to what he might be saying to you in the midst of this. To you being forgiven and to you extending forgiveness. We started our series with this statement from A.W. Tozer that said, what you think about God is the most important thought you will ever have. It matters what you think God is like because it determines how you live your life. And if you think that God is forgiving in the way that Exodus 34 reveals then your life is going to look pretty different, but maybe it doesn't. And I think in this moment, the Lord wants to speak something to you. It may be that the Lord wants to just speak to you His love. So if you might, you might like be doubting it. Let's doubt our doubts. It may be that the Lord wants to invite you to extend forgiveness to somebody that you haven't before. Let's just take a minute in silence and allow the, God, allow the Lord to speak to us what he would have us to say and do. So Jesus, we just invite you now to speak to our hearts and to our minds. We open ourselves to you. Speak to us, Lord, in your name. Amen. I'm just going to take a minute of silence to do this. If you do that, invite God to speak. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. Pray that we would respond to you as you call us, Lord, in your name. Amen. Worship team, would you guys come up? I want to close with a, a bit of a response because I think, well, anytime the Lord speaks, we need to respond. That's critical. It's critical that we respond when he speaks to us. So I want to respond in kind of two ways. First of all, did you notice that when God revealed himself to Moses, what Moses' response was? It was to worship. It says he fell down quickly. 
It wasn't like, I gotta wait to get into this, Lord. I, you know, I, I'm gonna need a few songs to warm up on this one, God. Has anybody ever said that before? I know I felt it. It says that God stood by him and Moses just hung out. But when God said to him of himself that he is mercy, he is grace, he is loving kindness that pursues him, that he has forgiven every transgression, every iniquity, and every sin of everyone. When Moses heard and saw God in that way, he fell down as fast as he could 